0: We're in the fourth week today of our sermon series on Jesus' parables, and today we're looking at a parable that really is nothing short of extraordinary. The parable of the prodigal son, as it is often called, is so beautiful and so dramatic and so textured that it would be in the literary canon even if it were not Holy Scripture. It is just that good of a story. Charles Dickens called this parable the greatest story ever told. Claude Debussy wrote a cantata about this parable. Shakespeare used this parable in many of his plays, most notably as a blueprint for his characters in Henry IV. There have been literally countless books and poems and paintings and movies and sermons exploring this parable, and yet most of the sermons and paintings and movies tend to miss the parable's complexity. And what I mean by this is that most people have only focused on one of the two sons in this story. And without a doubt, his story is important. But there's another son in this parable who may be even more important. Let me give you a quick analogy. Let's say you have a family with two brothers. And one of these two brothers is the black sheep. He drops out of high school. He gets hooked on drugs. He lives on the street. He lies. He's always asking for money, promising that he'll pay people back. Of course, he never does. This son seems to have no moral center. And everywhere he goes, he leaves chaos in his wake. I think it would be pretty easy to acknowledge that this young man is lost. And that is what we're going to see in the first part of Jesus's parable, a young man who was very clearly lost and who very clearly needs help. And of course, Jesus knew a lot of people like that. He was always spending time with people whose lives were lost, tax collectors, prostitutes. Jesus knew and loved a lot of people who were black sheep in their families, The first part of the story, as we will see, is a wonderful, inspiring story of one of these lost sheep returning to love. The problem is that most preachers stop there. Let's continue this analogy. Let's say in the same family there's an older brother who does everything right. He goes to Harvard undergrad and law school gets a job in one of the top firms in New York City, makes loads of money, but he's such a good person that he gives most of his money away. He goes to church every Sunday. He never lies. He never steals. He follows all of the rules perfectly. He becomes a public servant, an elder in his church, serves at the food kitchen on the weekends, never divorced, never cheats on his wife. And in fact, it's usually this brother who has to bail his deadbeat younger brother out of jail. When he gets arrested again and again, this older brother would seem to have it all together. Well, what if I told you that the older son, the moral one, the generous one, the successful one, is just as lost as his little brother? Because inside, underneath that perfect exterior, he's dead inside. And in fact, the perfect exterior is actually part of the problem because he spends more time maintaining a facade of goodness than of actually feeling good. And so you see, this remarkable story from Jesus will show us that there are actually two ways of being lost. You can be lost by rejecting the rules, and you can be lost in following the rules. Let's turn to this reading. This is from the 15th chapter of Luke, verses 1 to 3 and 11 to 32. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the wealth that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between the two sons. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he traveled to a distant region, and there he squandered his wealth in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that region, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that region, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs." He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands." So he set off and he went to his father, but while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. That's the first part of the parable. Here comes the second part. Now his elder son was in the field and as he came and approached the house, He heard music and dancing. He called out to one of the slaves and asked what was going on. The slave replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, For all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command yet you have never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your assets with prostitutes you killed the fatted calf for him? Then the father said to him son you are always with me And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. What a story. Let's start with the young son in this parable. I mean, after all, he's the one who usually gets all of the attention. His story begins as pure tragedy. The young son comes to his father and demands that he give him his share of the family inheritance. Now the problem is not that the son expects money from his father, it was common in the ancient world for sons to inherit their father's wealth as it is today. The problem is the timing of this request. You see, this son asks for his inheritance while the father is still alive. And that was simply not done. This suggests that the young son is estranged from his father in a very profound way. It suggests that there is no love that this young son feels for his father. It suggests that his relationship with his father is transactional. He just wants his money. And he's tired of waiting around for his father to die. He's tired of maintaining the pretense that he respects his father. The son is coming right out and saying, old man, all I want from you is your money. But it's actually worse than this. Because what the young son is actually saying to his father is that he wishes he were dead already. If you look at the Greek, you will find the word bios right, from which we get our word biology. The word bios means life. In order to grant the young son's request, the father has to liquidate his property. He has to sell his land and his animals, but what the text actually says is that he liquidates his bios. The son is taking the father's very life from him. Now, it should be pointed out that No father in the ancient world would have ever tolerated this kind of disrespect. And that's the first clue that we are not dealing here with the human father. Jesus, as he often does in his parables, is using metaphors. The father in this story we are beginning to see is God. But even this extraordinary display of generosity does not warm the son's heart toward his father. He sticks to his plan. He takes the money and runs. And for a little while, this selfish son perhaps forgets about all the drama he has caused. We have to imagine that there was a lot of drama Think about what his older brother probably said when he saw his father selling land and livestock while he was still alive in order to fulfill this selfish brother's request. Think about what the neighbors said when they saw this scandal. Think about what people in the synagogue said. But for a while, the young son can forget about all this because he runs off to a distant country and he drowns himself in what our translation calls Dissolute living. Now that's a very highbrow word for some very lowbrow activity. <laughs> Let's speak very frankly. This young man spent his father's life on booze and women. The Greek word is asostos, it means wasteful. The young son wastes his father's money. He parties as hard as he can, but even in his pleasure, there's something so tragic about this. You know, it seems as if the young son is trying to find life. He's going out, he's making his own way, he goes to a different place, he wants to make himself feel alive. The problem that he's, is that he's trying to squeeze life out of idols, sex, drugs, alcohol. At this point in the story, his, his, the, uh, the parable, his story begins to resemble what I think a lot of people have experienced, people who struggle with addiction, I remember when I was younger, <clears throat> I used to watch these VH1 documentaries called Behind the Music. Is anyone of my generation, do you remember some of these great documentaries? Right? They show the real lives of famous musicians, and basically it's, they all follow the exact same formula. It seems like everybody who becomes a rock star basically goes through the same experiences. A musician becomes a rock and roll star, he makes a lot of money, and then he squanders it in a sostos, sex and drugs and alcohol. Midway through the documentary, it always happens the same way, he hits rock bottom. He sees the error of his ways, he sees that he's not really living, he's actually dying. In the darkness, he sees the light, he gets help, and he turns his life around. I don't mean to diminish these stories. They are powerful. They bring a lot of people to church, right? The same thing happens in this parable. The young son hits rock bottom. He loses everything. Every cent of his father's bios is wasted. He becomes so poor that he finds himself in a rather ironic situation. He has to get work as a hired hand. Remember, he grew up as a wealthy child on an estate in which hired hands served him. Now he becomes the servant but he's about to be even more humiliated because he is hired by a landowner who sends him into a field to feed pigs. Remember, this is a young Jewish man. But now he is far away in Gentile territory and he is forced to work with unclean animals, which means he is literally as low as a Jewish person could get. He is down on his knees in the mud working with pigs. And there is this poignant detail that the young man sees these pigs eating slop, and he envies them. For a very simple reason, he is hungry. They have food and he doesn't. The young son's isolation is complete. He's totally degraded. He's penniless, he's dirty, he's desperate, he's lost everything. And in the darkness of that moment, a thought comes to him. He remembers his father, the father he wished were dead. He suddenly has the thought, maybe he will let me live if I can be a slave in his household. You see, this this young son has no pretensions that he will ever be his father's son again, but he's in a matter of life and death. He needs food and shelter and clothing. Maybe he thinks if I go to my father and I repent, he will at least let me be a slave in his household. Sitting there amongst the swine, he creates a little speech, and he memorizes it. He says, if I go to my father, this is what I'm going to say. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. You see, he has no expectation of forgiveness. He knows he doesn't deserve it. But something has changed. He has finally accepted responsibility, and that is significant. He finally admits that his father was never the problem. He was the problem. And with that newfound sense of responsibility, he begins walking back toward his father's home. And now we come to the part of the story that most people talk about. Most of the time you read this parable, it is because of what happens next. As the young son walks toward his father's house, his father sees him coming from far away and the father does something that no human father would ever do, he runs toward this wayward son. This son who wished that he were dead, he runs to him with open arms. He puts his arms around this child, he kisses him, he takes a fine robe and he drapes it on his son's shoulders. If we could take a moment, I'd like to ask you to look at the painting on the cover of your bulletin This is how Rembrandt imagined this scene in the 1600s. On the left side of the painting, you'll see the young son. He's kneeling, and you can see how disheveled he looks. His clothes are torn and dirty. His feet are barren. He has no shoes. His head is shaved. He has no beard. He's a picture of desperation, and yet if you can look into his face, you'll see that he's at peace because he's falling into his father's arms. He has his father's love, and therefore he has all he needs. The other amazing thing I think that Rembrandt pulls out of this story is the happiness of the father, the relief of the father that his son is home. I mean, the love that this father has for this child is extraordinary. He throws a feast for him. He kills the fatted calf for him. That was extraordinarily precious food. The father spares no expense. He invites all the neighbors, all the friends from synagogue. In front of all of them, he forgives and celebrates this son. They all knew the shame that he had brought to the family. And yet the father restores everything. All the sins are forgiven. All the shame is erased. The son is completely restored. I think we can see why this part of the story is so famous. In a powerful way, it shows us the forgiveness that God really does extend to all people. It's an incredibly moving picture of grace. And for anybody who has lived the the behind-the-music life, I think you will find endless comfort in this part of the story. The problem is that that's not all of the parable. We have to continue because Jesus continues, and what happens next is arguably more important for most of us. Let's get back to the story. In the midst of this joyous scene, not everybody is celebrating. The elder brother who has been working in the field, he hears music, he hears dancing, he hears glasses clinking, he hears people laughing. He comes down from the field and he he asks a servant, what's going on? The servant says, Your father is throwing a feast for your brother. He's returned. He's got him back safe and sound. What do you think the older brother's reaction is? Is he happy to have his brother back? Does he share in the joy that his brother has taken responsibility finally for all of his mistakes? Is he grateful that his brother has seen the light? No. He's outraged, he's furious. He stands outside the tent. He refuses to go in. In fact, he makes his father come outside to him. And you see, that is our first clue that he doesn't love the father either. No respectful son would force his father to leave his guest and to come outside. The older son is a mirror image of the younger son. He is saying the same thing that the younger son said I am in control, not you. And when the father finally comes outside showing the same amazing patience that he showed to the younger son, the older brother just lets him have it. He just unleashes a torrent of rage on the father. Listen, he tells his father. For years I have been working like a slave for you. I have never disobeyed your command. You've never given me even a goat. That I might celebrate with my friends. But when this loser son of yours comes back, who has devoured your very life with prostitutes, what do you do? You throw a feast for him? And you see, now we get to the main point of the parable. There is more than one way to be lost. There is more than one way to be estranged from the Father. You can be estranged in lust, and you can be estranged in self righteousness. The older brother's speech reveals so much about his character. It shows that he wasn't following the rules out of any sense of love or respect, he was following the rules in order to get something. He was just as transactional as his younger sibling. I mean, he says it right here. For years, I worked for you and never disobeyed you, and yet you never threw a party for me. In other words, the reason I was a good person and followed all of your rules is because I fully expected to get something from it. That is the very nature of a transactional relationship, and it is the precise opposite of real love. Real love, agape love, as the Bible describes it, is when we help other people without expecting anything in return. When we love others because God loved us first, not because we're trying to manipulate God into giving us something that we think we earned. This is the son who did everything right. He went to Harvard, he gave money to charity, he served on the session of the church, and the reason he did it is because it made him feel superior to other people. The older son hates and judges his brother. This guy is a loser. I am better than him. This was a competition that I was supposed to win. And now we have to ask, which of these sons is better off? The person who looks good on the outside or the person who is forgiven on the inside? Let's look again at that Rembrandt painting. The elder son stands on the right side of the frame. This is Rembrandt doing a midrash. Because in the story, the elder son doesn't actually witness the father embracing the younger son, but it's a brilliant midrash because it captures the heart of this story that the elder son stands apart. He stands on the sidelines looking at what's happening. He refuses to join the feast. He knows There is dancing and eating and happiness and that he's invited to join the feast and yet in his self-righteousness, he refuses to go inside. And so look at these two brothers. Which would you rather be? On the one hand, you have a son who is filthy, exhausted, ashamed of himself, utterly desperate and hungry. On the other side, you have a son who is well-dressed, has a handsome beard, has the respect of the community, Which would you rather be? Because only one of these sons has a heart that's finally open to love. What this parable does is it redefines the way a lot of people think about sin. Is sin loose living? Is it wasting our gifts like the younger son? Yes, that can be sinful. That is idolatry. That is putting other things in the place of God. But for most of us, Sin is having a hard, rigid, unforgiving heart, feeling proud, feeling superior, feeling as if God owes us something, feeling jealous and envious and angry when other people see the light because we think they don't deserve it as much as we do. If you look around at our society today, you will see a tragic amount of self-righteousness and a tragic dearth of empathy and mercy. How quick people are to jump to conclusions, how quick people are to cancel one another. We live in a society of elder brothers. And what's so insidious about this is that this kind of sin is harder to see and therefore it's harder to change. If somebody hits rock bottom, it's pretty clear that they need to change. But when a person looks so good on the outside It's harder to see that on the inside, they're just as lost. Now, let's talk about the good news in this story. This story is often called the parable of the prodigal son. The word prodigal means wasteful. And that, of course, refers to the younger son who wastes all of his father's inheritance. And yet, you know, there's another character in this story who is arguably more wasteful. The father himself The father is reckless with his love. He gives away his bios to anyone who asks for it. He forgives more quickly than we do. He throws a feast whenever his sheep return home. And as we've been working through this series, maybe you've noticed that this is an ongoing theme of Jesus' stories, the recklessness of God's love, Think about some of the themes of these parables. God invades your life like a mustard weed, overcoming your resistance and taking over your carefully cultivated garden. God sows his seeds in thorn bushes and on barren paths because that's where we live. Now, he knows that they're probably not going to keep, take root, but he keeps trying. God forgives the slave who owes 10,000 talents. God is hidden like a treasure in a field, always near, always calling us home. He is utterly prodigal with his love. Nobody told God to go to the cross. That was his idea. What Jesus is showing us in these stories is that the kingdom of God is subversive. We don't find it, it finds us. I heard a wonderful statement the other day from Desmond Tutu's daughter and she is an Episcopal priest, and she was talking about conversion, that the way that God takes over our lives like a mustard weed, and this is what she said, conversion is not my job. That's God's job. My job is to live faithfully. And what I think she meant by that is that God is already running toward you with his arms wide open. You don't have to call to him. He's already running toward you hoping to welcome you. He's already forgiven you. He's already prepared a feast. Really, the only question is, are you going to go inside the tent? Or are you going to stand outside like the elder brother? Let's pray. God of grace, your reckless love is almost too much to comprehend. You invite us to a feast that we don't deserve. You don't count our sins against us. And yet, day after day, we resist falling into your arms like the younger son. Show us the steps that we need to take to open our hearts to you. Move through our lives like a weed that grows within us even when we are not looking. In Christ we pray. Amen.